Today, we're going to continue in our series. We're in the third week of our series, Vices, uh, The Things That Hold Us. And this is a series where uh, it's kind of a little bit different, and I know that because we've been looking at the seven capital vices together. And if you're not familiar with that, sometimes we call them uh, the seven deadly sins. And if you're like, why don't you call it then that? And, and just go back two weeks. You can listen online and kind of check it out and go, oh, that's why. Um, but before we jump into our topic for today, I thought it'd be a little bit of, uh, I want to play a game together. Are you cool with that? Yeah. Right? Um, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to need some feedback here. All right? So you're going to yell some things out to me here. And I'm going I'm, I'm to ask you a question. And when I ask you this question, your answers are not going to come back to bite you. And it's not going to be like, oh, if I say something, he's going to be like, oh, and no, no, no. Okay, we're going to have some fun here. So here's what I would love for you to do. Think for a second of um, some celebrities. Just get them in your head. Okay, some celebrities. And... Uh, Give me a celebrity you think everybody knows. Okay, I heard Will, Will Smith. I heard a double Will Smith. You pointed at each other. Uh, Will Smith. Everybody heard of Will Smith. Give me a hands up here. Uh, there's a high five there. Okay, some of you, you're liars. I see it right now. You know what? You're like, if I raise my hand, someone might look at me. I don't want them to look at me. Now we're looking at you because you didn't. So if you've heard of Will Smith, go ahead, raise your hands. All right, yeah, for those who haven't, go ahead, look at them, right? They're lying to you. Um, great. See, this is what we're going to do. All right, give me another celebrity. Ryan Reynolds. How many are Ryan Reynolds? Okay, there we go. Let's keep going. Let's hear something from this side. Tom okay, well, Jennifer Aniston over Tom Hanks. Sorry, we'll go Tom Hanks in a second. Jennifer Aniston. Heard of Jennifer Aniston? Okay, great. Um, if you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you should be like real quick up. That's our friend's girl right there. All right, uh, we heard Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, America's dad. Any Tom Hanks? You, you've heard of Tom Hanks? Okay, some of you are like, who's Tom Hanks? Uh, Woody in Toy Story. Is that better, Tom Hanks? Okay, there we go. Um, now, celebrities, we've got this down. We've all got this. Now, I, I want you to think for a second. Name someone that you would consider a personal hero. Okay, think about it for a second. Someone that you would want your life to look like their life, the way that they live. And, and as you're thinking, let me just kind of start it out. I would say, uh, since I've had time to think about this, two that I would pick uh, as I was writing this out very fast that came to my mind was uh, my father being one of them and my grandmother Lois who just celebrated her 88th birthday this week and uh, just to talk to her for a second it was so cool she picked up right away because that's what Graham does and I thought I want to I live like that wow and so if you have how many of you have heard of my dad or my Graham <laughs> a handful of you you've met them that's cool um, who for you is someone you'd consider a personal hero? Will. Will. How many of you have heard of, I'm assuming you're Will, uh, Pastor Will, not Will Smith? <laughs> I mean, I know they're close, but uh, okay, Pastor Will. Uh, how many of you have heard of Pastor Will? Okay, if you have not heard of him, you just heard him. Um, amazing. All right, give Paul. me Paul. Uh, is there a specific? Saul of Tarsus, okay? You know him well. Oh, you read about him, okay. It's kind of like that. Yeah, that counts. I'll, I'll let it count. Someone for you. You consider a personal hero. Del, what, what are you thinking? Oh, my late friend, Mickey McClinsey. Mickey, Mickey McClinsey. How many of you know Mickey? Okay, cool. Awesome. Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis. How many of you know Andy Serkis? Okay. Some of you, you can connect with each other. That's great. Um, Andy, 
uh, you want to live your life like? Janine Robbins. How many of you know Janine Robbins? Where is Janine Robbins? You know, it's funny as we do this. Um, there's a contrast. There's a contrast between the people that we celebrate, the people that get all the attention, and the people who really might be worth paying attention to. Isn't there? The people we look at versus the people we look up to. And that's at the very heart of this vice that we will be looking at today together, the vice of vainglory, the vice of vainglory. Now, I know that this isn't a word we use anymore at all. Um, and what's really funny about this word is it's not even on the list of the seven deadly sins. It's, it's somehow been removed and forgotten. Uh, sometimes we use the word vanity when we talk about this. Is that a more familiar word to you? Um, so it's, it's, but vanity is a bit different because vanity is really uh, the excessive focus on how you look to others, okay? It's the, uh, really the attention to how you're coming across. And what vainglory is, is it's about the desire to be noticed, and not just the desire to be noticed, but the desire to be applauded, okay? It is not just being noticed for what, how we look or what we do, it's being applauded for how we look and what we do. Vainglory, I love this definition, is the excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval. It is the excessive and disordered desire. And I think that that's it, right? There's all this desire that we have in us for recognition and approval, but this is when it goes over the top and it becomes too much and it gets all out of order, and, and we become desperate for others to look at us. Vainglory really literally means empty glory. That's what this word means. And the funny thing about this vice is that this vice can kind of be born out of both arrogance and insecurity, which is really weird, isn't it? That it could be coming out of both these places. Arrogance, we see it show up when we think that we are better than others. And, and this place of insecurity, we see it show up because we're afraid now that others are going to discover that we're not who we pretend we are. And we're going to unpack that, but I really, I do think it's so important to recognize and look to the root of where this vice comes from because we don't talk about it in our culture. We actually celebrate it. And because of that, we've got some issues that we're going to have to deal with. This vice reveals in every single one of us, from the very youngest kid to the oldest of adults, that we have, every one of us, a deep human need for full and unconditional love and acceptance. Every one of us, if you are here this morning, if you are watching with us online, you desire and need full, unconditional love and acceptance. This is what we want in our life. And this vice is when we twist that. Right? We all want to be seen, to be loved, to be celebrated. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I know that because it reveals itself so early, um, so early. Have you ever been around a little kid when they discover something new that they can do? Right? There's always that moment um, that I can remember being a kid 
and saying the same thing that I heard my kids say, and I'm sure you have said, and your kids have said, or the kids in your classroom have said, your brothers and sisters, and said, it always for me came down to, Dad, look at me. Dad, watch this. Watch this. Hey, Dad, can you just, just watch, just watch. Please tell me you've heard that. You've said it too, haven't you? I have too. It could be for me when I was learning, I remember the first time to dive off a diving board or I was learning to flip off a diving board. I was real excited and each time I was going to do it, dad, look at me when I could finally jump and hit the basket, the net of the basketball hoop because there's no way, come on, these hops are not happening here. Um, It's just not there. So when I remember the first time I got the net and I was, what did I do? Dad, come watch me. Look at this. But I'll tell you that even now, to this very day, in my 40s, when I'm playing golf with my dad and I hit a great shot, it might not be out loud, but I still turn internally saying, dad, look at me. Look what I did. You see, we have this in us that we want to be seen. We want to be celebrated. Is that vain glory then? No, no, not always but it reveals that there's this longing to be seen, to be loved, and to be celebrated. And if we don't start at that place, vainglory takes this root, and we think we're doing something wrong, right? When we desire that recognition and approval and get it, we want it in excess now. For everything we do, it's about getting the applause. It's vainglory when we do what we do to get the attention and the applause of others instead of God. We started this series talking about how pride is really the root of all of these vices, right? That, that, and in the end, we can get back to pride when we work through these things that take a grip of our life. But vainglory and pride seem to run really tight together. And so it's sometimes hard to see how they're different, but, but they really are. So just to kind of uh, lighten it a little for you here, maybe this will help. I'm, I'm going to show you a picture of a movie character in a second. And I want you to tell me now... Do you think that their struggle, their vice, is it pride, is it vainglory, or is it both, okay? Is it pride, vainglory, or both? All right, so here's our first picture. This is um, Gilderoy Lockhart. He is Order of Merlin, third class, honorary member of the Dark Force Defense League, and five times winner of which weekly's uh, Most Charming Smile Award? Is vainglory, pride, both? What are you thinking? Okay, yeah, this is easy, vainglory. Vainglory. I mean, I just love this picture. He's standing in front of a portrait of a portrait that he's standing in front of of himself, of himself. Like it's very meta there. Okay, it's very meta. It's vainglory. How about this one? How about this one? This is Mr. Darcy. Uh, one of my favorite quotes that he has in this movie is uh, in reference to a woman, and he said she's tolerable, but not handsome enough to tempt me. And I am in no humor at present to give consequence to young ladies who are slighted by other men. Oh, that's, that's strong, right? What do we got? Prejudice. Prejudice. <laughs> Bonus points. Bonus points, Sam. What do we got here? Do we have vainglory? Do we have pride? Do we have both? Pride. pride. It's the other half of what Sam said. This will always be the Mr. Darcy for me. That's just who he's going to be, right? This is the essence of pride. Um, how about this one? We love Gaston, right? You're everybody's favorite guy, and it's not too hard to see why. We got both with Gaston. Why? He is all about getting the applause, but at the same time, it's to rule over this town, and it's all about him. 
And lastly, how about this one? The wicked witch. So here's what's wild about the wicked witch. She's like the trifecta of not just vainglory and pride. She brings in envy. Nailed it. She brings in envy. Pride. She wants to be the best, doesn't she? Vainglory. She needs the applause of this mirror to affirm her, right? She needs an audience. And then envy. She looks at Snow White, and when someone has it better, she gets bitter and wants her done with. And it's really kind of nice when you see it on screen, and we can look and say, there, is, there are some differences here that we need to pay attention to, but it's concerning to me that this vice, while we would love to look at our culture and say, look how much they suck, they've all got this. No, the reality is it is so alive, active, rooted in the church today. It's rooted in us as followers of Jesus. This is not a new vice. And even in the passage that Jeremy had read for us when we started, we find the disciples of John the baptizer, this man that we read about in John, and, and his disciples are struggling with a little bit of inglory here, right? John is Jesus's cousin, if you don't know the story. And he started going around doing ministry, like trying to help people before Jesus did and before Jesus gained this pretty substantial following. And let me tell you, he did not gain a following because of how he looked. My man ran around with like clothes made of camel hair, which is like long, straggly, sometimes like six to 18 inch length hair that's just dangling off him. He had a regular steady diet of the only kosher bug that existed in the desert of, of locusts. Now, if you're going to sign up to say, hey, look at me, is this the guy you're looking at? No, no, this is not the guy you're looking at, but he has gained a following. He's gained this a giant group of people, and his message of repentance and hope that the Messiah was coming had drawn people in. Even in the first century, what we find is that it's easy to find your worth and approval in a large crowd when they follow you and they applaud your message. It's never going to get old for us. But what happens when the crowd that we have the applause that we aim for starts to shrink. We read in John chapter 3 and verse 26, it says, so John's disciples came to him and they said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah is also baptizing people and everyone's going to him instead of coming to us. Can you feel the frustration in their voice? Like, come on here. The crowd size matters. It's ours is getting smaller. And, and John's response is not what they were expect. He says in verse 27, he says, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. Therefore, I'm filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. You see, the motivation behind ministry was the difference between John and his disciples. His disciples loved the crowd. And the bigger it got, the more effective they felt, the more value they felt. The applause was what they loved. But John's motivation came from knowing, I am not the Messiah. I know who I'm not. I know where I'm supposed to be, and I know who I'm supposed to point to. And so when Jesus' ministry starts to grow, John 
can just sit in this place of joy, this place of celebration. And I just love verse 30. It's so amazing. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He was not living for glory, his own glory. He was not living for his own applause. He was living so that all glory and all applause would be directed straight towards Jesus. Let me tell you, when we can learn to live like this, there are some benefits There are some benefits to living a life pointing out towards Jesus. One of them, the first one, is simply making less of ourselves removes a significant burden. Making less of ourselves removes a significant burden. I'm just telling you, I think we routinely think of ourselves too much. We do. I believe that if we were no longer consumed with ourselves, we could actually settle into our true identity as children of God. John didn't carry the burden and the need to be applauded, so he lost nothing when Jesus was elevated. He lost nothing. There's no burden of propping himself up. One of the second things, the benefit of this is, once we're free from trying to be remembered, we can focus on what really matters. We can begin to help elevate, promote, encourage the people around us, that we can help them step into the potential that God has for them, which is pretty much exactly what Jesus did, isn't it? Right? How many times do we read about him healing people and saying, don't go tell anybody, this is for you. Just go to the temple, get right with God and give God the glory, give God the praise. He wasn't loving people so that he would say, now that you're healed, Do me a favor, applaud. Go get your friends who are sick and bring them so we can get more applause, right? He wasn't loving people for for this reason. He was loving people because that's what the kingdom of heaven is all about. It's elevating that God loves you and wants to see you restored. He wants to see you whole. This is what it's all about. And most of the time he says, just go to the temple and get back in community. Go get back in community because your burden has removed you. You need people to do this. Go celebrate what God has done for you. God sees you. He loves you. He celebrates you, which meets the very deepest need of our heart. Here's... This has been a really hard message to write because it's so stinking complicated. And I don't know how to do this right today. And I feel like because I struggle with this, I mean, for real, I've been asking, is it at all possible to live our lives in such a way that we can genuinely say what John the Baptist, John the Baptizer says, that he must become greater and greater and I must become less and less because the vainglory that I wrestle with has a different mantra where it says, I must become greater and greater and you must become less and less. And it's hard because Jesus confuses me. In his Sermon on the Mount, he addresses this straight up, right? And I mean, within two chapters, he mentions vainglory in a different way. Um, just if, if you can, look in the biography of Jesus, cha- by, written by Matthew, chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 14, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. 
No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your, what here? Let your, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. All right, cool. We are light. We're supposed to be put on a lampstand so that we can light the whole house so that right, we've got these good deeds and they're for all people to see. But then in chapter 6, like the very next chapter, the first verse, Jesus says this, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be affirmed by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Okay, so be careful not to do good deeds publicly, or you lose a reward in heaven. Did Jesus just contradict himself within like, like, like a minute of teaching? Right? Or are we to do good deeds to be seen or not to be seen? When people tell me that the Bible is confusing for them, I completely understand what they mean. What does Jesus want me to do? That's all I want to know around now. Jesus, what do you want from me? I'll do it. And this is what is the most amazing thing about Jesus. He says, your heart is what I want from you. Your motivation behind what you do changes everything. In chapter 5, we are light. And we are meant to bring light to this world that is so dark. And they will see that through what we do. We have these good deeds that God has prepared in advance for us to do, right? And, And when people see them, their applause goes actually It's not at us. Their applause goes to what Jesus says so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. These good deeds we are given to do, not to say, look, I'm awesome. It's because I go to Crossbridge. Well, it kind of makes you awesome, but it's different. (laughs) We want, we want to be praised, and God says, I've got good deeds prepared for you, not so that you get the credit, but I do. I do. The applause is directed at God. And in chapter 6, the motivation for the good deeds is different here, right? It's not necessarily to bring applause to God. He says, avoid doing these good deeds to be admired by others. Don't live your life in a way that your aim is to draw the attention and the applause to yourself. The good deeds to say, look how much I gave. Look how much I've served. This is the vice of vain glory. Does that make sense? Vain glory doesn't do something because it's excellent or it's right. Instead, it simply does whatever will bring the most public applause. And when the applause comes, the behavior is likely to be repeated at greater intervals. I don't need to harp on how social media goes right into this. I think we're brilliant enough as people or have enough common sense to see that across any platform online, almost all of the content that is curated is simply for likes, comments. We are looking for attention and applause. Would you agree? I mean, just to call it for what it is. And we'll go to great lengths to get the applause. I mean, there is so much data out there right now about how just a regular selfie will gain you some likes. There's no doubt about it. But if you take that same selfie in a bathing suit with more skin showing, your post is like it is going to be picked up by the algorithms of many of these sites, pushed to the top of people's feeds, 
and your likes and your comments become greater. The applause sounds louder. And behavior that is celebrated then becomes behavior that's repeated, isn't it? If your life is rooted in vainglory and this vice has a hold on you, receiving the applause, it feels so good. What kind of pictures and posts are we more likely to put out there? Right? And when someone else shows a little more, complains a lot more, and they start to get to the applause, what will we do to get it back? How far will we go? What will we do to impress the people around us to gain their applause again? This is both true online and in reality, isn't it? And here's what I find depressing, is that the average person tends to cover up all their flaws, the things that make us human, and we hide everything that people, or we perceive that people won't like about us. And we want to highlight everything that they will like about us or we think that they'll like about us because we're worried that they won't love us for who we really are. And so to impress others, to gain applause, we hide ourselves. We are terrified of not being fully loved. That if someone knew how deep the rabbit hole of this vice went in our life and how much we do care and how insecure we really are. Would they really love us? I hope you see how vainglory isn't always just about looking good. It's about doing whatever it takes to keep the eyes and the applause going. And it's gonna show up in a couple different ways that you could pay attention to. If you start to see arrogance, um, pay attention. Arrogance is we puff ourselves up so much that we risk losing sight of reality, right? We have not earned our glory or our status. We become arrogant. We, we see it could show up through insecurity. We've talked about this. We're afraid to show who we really are because we feel that who we really are is inadequate. And so we hide behind a very clear fake image. And I say clear because we want it to be seen by everybody, but they can see just enough. We see this leads us to hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, come on, we expect others to be honest about what they've achieved and what, uh, you know, how they've lived their life. And we're not honest ourselves. We lie just as much as the people around us do. And that's exactly what it leads to. It leads to lying. We do not tell the truth about ourselves to ourselves. We do not tell the truth. And we disconnect ourselves from true relationships and we just do what we can to keep up the facade. I mean, think for a second. Have you ever worried about your worlds colliding? I can see some of you like, mm. right? Um, imagine someone who loves you deeply is going to throw you a surprise birthday party, and they happen to get a hold of your contacts in your phone, but. You didn't know that. And they sent out a group text to everybody. Oh, please never do that. Um, they happened to communicate with everybody in your contact list to say, I'm throwing a party for them, and, and it's a huge celebration, and we want you to come and celebrate. If you found out about that, how would you feel? Now, for those of you who hate being around people, you got to take that aside for a second, okay? Because you're like, it sounds horrible already. Um, 
Here's what I'm saying. Again, some of you who are like, I love old people, let's do this big party. Think your work world, your school world, your neighborhood world, your gym world, your church world, your family world will all now be present in one place with every story about you. Some of you are getting anxious right now, aren't you? You don't even like this illustration. You're like, I don't want them to know this about me, and they can't know this about me. Do you know what that is? That is lying. That is lying. That is not being the true person who God has created us to be. And so if you are worried about one world colliding with the other, and they're going to know I'm not, and you fill in the blank for what you think that is, you are lying to the people around you. This is sin. And almost all the time, if you're worried about being found out, this is always rooted in fear. It's fear. Fear, you don't have what it takes. You, personally you, the, way, the one who's been created in the image of God, knit together, you don't have what it takes to win the approval and the appreciation of the people around you. And weirdly enough, the people that we don't even know that we're looking for applause from. This becomes this, this weird game of hide and seek with ourselves. We don't even know who we are anymore. We just need the applause but the people around us don't know who we are. What can I carefully curate about myself to project confidence, approval, right? What can I hide about the real me that I don't want you to see anymore? As a, come on, as a culture, we're obsessed with looking younger. Like somehow aging has become this disease to avoid. How much money do we spend on, on new clothes to stay up on trends to look better. How much do we spend on cosmetics, hair coloring, plastic surgeries? I mean, we are trying to draw attention to what we think other people value because we fear they won't like us just like we are. Being glory is about bringing attention back to us. Glory comes to one central place, me. In Terry Pratchett's book, Going Postal, um, this is a book, it's like a huge series in Discworld, it's like his 33rd book. He says this, it's a fantasy series, it's fantastic. He says, always remember, the crowd that applauds your coronation is the same crowd that will applaud your beheading. People like a show. We sure do like a show, don't we? We sure do. And if this was just a culture thing, it'd be one thing, but this vice eats us alive in the church. And so many church followers, um, and, or so many people who attend church and followers of Jesus, we are attention junkies like the Pharisees were. We do anything we can to be seen, to be heard. Just like them, we do things to stand up and say, look, I am a respectable follower of God. Right? How many of us try to project this image that's not really real? Like, I am holy. I am, you know, put together and we do this for the sake of other people's applause. In the church, we say and we try to do the right things to draw attention to us, to me, instead of God. I mean, at least when the world struggles with being glory, they're clamoring for applause that's already going to someone else, to each other. But in the church, God forgive us, how many times are we stepping into good works that he's given us and we're trying to get the applause for us when God's like, man, I set you up. This was the perfect opportunity to say, reflect it back. Look how much I love you and them. And instead we're like, but look, I've conquered this sin and I am victorious. 
Did you? Not alone you didn't. In the church, we steal glory from God. How many times do we hold our attendance, our serving, our worshiping, our giving? Forgive me, Crossbridge, even my preaching for the applause of others. I feel this tension right now, and I don't know what to do with it with you. There's a part of me that does not want to say any of this because I know that you expect your pastors to have all their stuff together, and I don't. You might. You don't. I know you. You know me. We don't. I've wrestled with how much I, I invest into this message, and I, want every, I really want you to know how much time I put into this. Even though it might feel scattered or it doesn't come together, I, I, I want the applause. I do. That, that man is connected, but in vain glory, that's what that is. But at the same exact time, my heart is completely oriented toward God, and I am desperate. I have this conviction for our church to understand, for you to understand what it means to be fully and unconditionally loved by God. And that will never happen if you try to draw the attention to you. It will never happen. Because people's applause will never fulfill you the way that Jesus Christ will. He, he can, they won't. We just sang it over and over. He won't fail you. He doesn't stop seeing you. And if we continue to look for the applause of others, you will every single time find the consistency that you will be let down. They will never, ever be able to see you applaud you the way that your creator will. And in front of your creator, you could be as bare as you want, as real as you want, with letting everything about you that you think is the worst and disqualifies you. And God says, I see you. I love you. Come here. I feel like I need to tell you today that Jesus is so in love with you. The real you. The you that he created. Some of you, you've been trying to hide from him. Because you don't think he'll love you because of this sin, that behavior. But... but Jimmy, I'm so inconsistent. If my worlds collided, you wouldn't believe what would happen. It'd be, it'd be a nightmare. I'd never survive. And I want to tell you, you would. You would survive. It would be a nightmare. But the best thing that could happen to us is our sin is found out, that we are exposed, that we're really not as awesome as we think we are. But we are deeply loved from the one who knit us together. Amen? Jesus loves you. He created you, and when no one else is looking at you, he's already been staring at you before you ever have to say the words, Dad, look at me. Dad, watch this. His eyes are on his child. If you want to get out of, if you find yourself wrestling with vainglory, there's two quick steps that I will give you to try to battle this. Um, they're kind of set in a place, it's going to sound weird, but um, if you want to deal with the public applause thing, your battle is really going to begin with secrecy and obscurity. It's like, what? Like, you want me to be secrecy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Secret and obscure. That's where it's going to come. And it's going to be practiced through two things, silence and solitude. Here's what's great about silence. Few things cut at the root of vainglory like silence will. Silence, and when I say this, I mean literally abstaining from speaking. Jesus models this over and over. When he's put into question, does he defend himself all the time? Feel like he's got to... No, he actually does 
He doesn't do it. Not with the disciples, not with his family, not with the, the Pharisees. He does, his life is on the line in front of Pilate, and he's like, answer me. You see, you can't make things about yourself if you're not speaking. You can't make it about yourself if you're not speaking. And I'm telling you now, this is much harder than you think it is. Try silencing your self-talk just for a day. Avoid sharing your opinion unless you're asked for it. Yeah, you didn't like that one, did you? No one cares about your opinion if they didn't ask for it. How long can you listen before you're ready to jump in and cut the conversation to go a different way? Or you want to make sure that when they said something, you've got a story that matches that. How long can you wait before a thought about you comes up when you're in a conversation about someone else? Practicing silence is great because it's going to help us to listen to people, to be attentive to what they need, what they're really going through. And when you're doing this, you're going to hate it. <laughs> I, I, as I'm doing this, I hate it. But I'm trying to pay attention to how it makes me feel at the end of every day. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. Right? How, what does it feel like not having a voice when I feel like I, I need it to defend myself or to say things? I've tried to practice this so much this week and I have failed miserably so many times. I was expecting an amen there, hon. <laughs> I've revealed how much of my value and my worth is based on applause, and I am sorry. The other way to fight this obscurity or to fight this vainglory is in obscurity. Not being known, that's going to be found in solitude. This is when you remove yourself from an audience, okay? Getting alone to just be with God, knowing that his eyes are on you and yours can be on him. The only voice that matters in any moment of solitude is his voice, and I am not suggesting in this moment, this is the right time to skip work. Don't go to school. You know, what happened? Pastor Jimmy said solitude, so I really feel like tomorrow morning, this is ideal. Um, actually, I will tell you, there was someone in our church who, um, after a couple, a couple weeks ago, they were so challenged by God to take the day off to journal, and God met them in such a deeply intimate way. And I was like, you took a day off to just go be with Jesus? And they're like, I didn't know how much I needed it. And all I could do was thank God that he met them in silence and solitude right? Maybe try abstaining, getting off of all social media for a week. <gasps> what will happen if the world doesn't hear your opinion? Nothing. What will happen when they do hear your opinion? Division and fighting. Try getting alone. At work, take your lunch not with people. Go back to your car. If you are at home and your kids go to school, take an hour and literally do nothing. Alone, like stand in your living room. You'll start going nuts within three minutes because we don't like this. We live so much of our lives surrounded by people it makes sense that we would care what they think, doesn't it? Could you imagine what it would be like if we spent this much time with our Savior and Creator? 
when it comes to the vice of being glory. I pray that our lives would look like what John the baptizer said, that he must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. And as we prepare to receive communion this morning, I want to leave you with the question that has been haunting me all week and uh, invite you into this just for a second and this will be the question to prepare our hearts for Lord we come to communion to elevate you, to celebrate you, to point all glory back to you. This is the question is, do people want to be more like me or more like Jesus? Let me give you a little bit of time and silence to ask that question yourself. Do people want to be more like me or more like Jesus? when Jesus was with his disciples. He was hanging out in the upper room with them. And in John 13, he didn't draw attention back to himself. Instead, he took off his robe, his, put himself in the place of a servant. And with what was his that could have elevated him, he, he bent down and he started washing the disciples' feet he said, your goal is not to elevate yourself, but to serve one another, to love one another, to look at what the people around you need, because God has set up a host of needs before us, not so that we could do it and say, look how awesome I am, or look how awesome Crossbridge is, or look how awesome... All that. Our sole focus is do not follow me, but follow Christ. And the example of serving with no recognition living a life of obscurity where when the crowd could have become bigger, he said, nah, let's go somewhere else. It's not about more applause. This is just going to get out of hand. Do you live so that people would look like you? To applaud you? Or would your life point to not be a celebrity we all know, but that's the life I want to look like. If I could live my life with that humility, with that honoring of God, what's it going to take to get us there? It takes communion. It takes elevating the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to be central at our church and in your life and mine. And if you are here and you have dedicated your life to Jesus Christ and say, I want to follow him and his teachings and give him everything I've got, then communion is open for you. And if you're in a place where you're like, I'm just not there, you feel free to hang back and stay seated. We would encourage you not to take communion. It's good for you not to. It's encouraged. But if you follow Jesus, this is for us to look across the table, not to celebrate each other, 
but to hold up the body, to hold up the cup. And this is the body and blood of Christ. This is where our hope is. Amen. Would you stand with me? I will pray. Jesus, this is your body. This is your blood. Would we elevate this, this symbol to be the highest priority in all our life, that in all we do at work, in all we do at home, in all we do in our marriage, in our siblings, and with our kids, and, and in all the places that we touch, would it be Jesus is becoming greater and greater, we're becoming less and less, and in all things, people see more of you, Jesus, less of us, and in that, our confidence would grow as your children. Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.